Welcome to this month's episode of Pull Up a Chair, an original podcast series produced by CFA Society Boston. I'm board chair Sarah Samuels, and with us today is Sloan Klein, a career and executive coach specializing in working with investment industry clients. Sloan talks about how her unique career path led to her coaching edge. She explains what coaching is and who should consider getting a coach. And she provides advice to investment professionals at all stages of their careers. Welcome to Pull Up a Chair, Sloan. We're so glad that you're here. Sloan, you're one of the top five executive coaches in the investment industry, according to Institutional Investor, and you work with hundreds of high-powered investors. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got here? Maybe what was a foundational childhood experience that formed who you are today? Sure. So the summer before eighth grade, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. And I found out that I had a large curve in the lower part of my back. And it was before I had experienced my major growth spurt. And so if it wasn't corrected, I was going to end up needing spinal fusion. So I was told that I had to wear a back brace 21 hours a day. And for a middle school girl, this would have been horrible for any middle school girl. And there were a couple of factors that made it, I felt, even harder for me, which was that I lived in Miami. And Miami, as you probably know, is about 85 degrees all the time. And I had just been elected a middle school government president. And every couple of times a week, we had a assembly. And I was supposed to get up and lead the assembly a couple of times a week. And so for me, this was just like the worst storm. The back brace was uncomfortable. I was so self-conscious. It gave me sores. I was embarrassed to change in the gym. I didn't want to go to school. Basically, I thought the world was ending. And the last thing I wanted to be was student body president. And day by day, I just pushed through it. And a lot of tears. I had to wear the brace, as I mentioned, 21 hours a day, but I didn't have to wear it when I was swimming. I joined the swim team and I became a competitive swimmer. I stood up there several times a week in the assembly and I, I led the assembly. And I found out that if I didn't make a big deal of it, nobody really cared. I wore a big jacket over my uniform so people couldn't see my brace and I ignored the heat. And ultimately, through my growth spurt, my back corrected and I did not have to get spinal fusion. And what this experience taught me was tenacity and persistence by accident, really. And it ultimately gave me a lot of inner confidence because when my spine was corrected because of these actions that I was able to take, I, I felt empowered. And later when I faced other hard things in my life, I had that experience to fall back on. And it was also a really good lesson about not being so self-centered. And because I had been through something hard, it also gave me empathy for people who are struggling and a desire to help. And I learned how to shift my focus away from myself and, and on to others. And this is a really important foundation of my work today. So it was a really important experience for me. It sounds very foundational. Tell us a little bit about where that took you next in terms of that adaptability and challenging yourself and being brave. I would say that next we're going to fast forward to I'm graduating from college. And I got to say it snuck up on me. I did not have a big plan. 
And I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And I settled on teaching. And I settled on teaching actually a little bit too late to apply for Teach for America, which was what really appealed to me. And so I literally went to the phone book, which you could do in those days. This was 1990. And I got a job as a uh, middle school Spanish and social studies teacher in an inner city school. And boy, did I have to draw on my tenacity and persistence. I was not prepared to be a teacher in any way. They literally gave me the Maryland curriculum book for social studies and just said, go. And I made it up as I went along. Being a teacher, you're like the CEO of your classroom. And so that was a, a big learning curve for me. But I just, I was not prepared for the challenges of teaching middle school in an inner city. And honestly, a lot of days after school, I went in the parking lot and sat in my car and cried. And I, I thought a lot about it. And I wanted to be, I had that desire to be a teacher in me and a guide, but I was not ready to be the kind of teacher and guide that I wanted to be yet. And I wasn't driven at that time to go back to school and, and get a degree in education. And I needed to make some more money. And so I ultimately decided to move to New York and shift career paths. But that tenacity and persistence that I learned early on definitely served me well for that year in the classroom. So these are all laying the groundwork, it sounds like, for you to really draw from a wide range of experiences and what you're doing today. But you didn't stop there. What did you do next in terms of your career and challenging yourself? So it's interesting. When I moved to New York, I realized when I look back on my career, it makes much more sense in hindsight than it did at the time. I just needed to get a job and I had graduated from Georgetown and there was a Georgetown alum running the institutional sales desk at Payne Weber and I got a job as an institutional sales assistant on, on the equity desk at Payne Weber and I did that for the next year and I loved the markets and then I decided that I really wanted to get some more formal training and so I applied to analyst training programs at investment banks and I knew it was a long shot, but I thought, why not? And I ultimately got hired at Lehman Brothers. And I remember going into my interview with the head of HR at, at Lehman Brothers for the analyst program. And she was wanted me to tell her why they should hire someone who'd been a middle school teacher in an inner city school. And I had a really good answer. <laughs> And again, it was that tenacity and persistence. And I actually think that's what ended up getting me that job. I spent the next five years at Lehman Brothers. I ultimately went into institutional sales there and worked on the institutional sales desk and got to learn everything about the markets. And then I went back to Columbia Business School. And out of business school, I had the good fortune to be uh, recruited by a woman by the name of Marilyn Prince, who today is one of the top, actually was then and, and is still today one of the top asset management recruiters, to go into recruiting. It was not something that I had ever planned to do, but the more that I learned about it, I, I found that I loved it and I was fascinated by the investment management business. And I just, for the next four years, got to be her bag carrier and learn everything about and meet everybody in the investment management business. And it was a fantastic seat to be in. I did searches across all functional areas of investment management and met all different kinds of stakeholders in the business. And we then decided to move to the West Coast for personal reasons. 
and I changed firms. And then I joined a large firm and I came across another person who was a fantastic mentor to me, a guy by the name of Joe Healy, who's today the head of private equity at Corn Ferry. And Joe and I started working together at a large firm called TMP, and we both wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. I really wanted to return to a small firm environment. And so we ended up spinning out with a a few other partners and co-founding a search firm called Sextant Search Partners. I ran the West Coast, and we grew that into a successful financial services search boutique. Ultimately, we had about 50 people. I really served in a player coach role. So I was helping to build and manage the business and I was recruiting. And through this whole period of time of my career as a recruiter, it was a little over 10 years, I was doing much of the same thing, which was recruiting senior people in investment management across all functional areas of investment management and all different sectors of the investment management business from marketable to alternatives. And fast forward to about 2006, and I just started thinking about what I was doing and what I really liked to do. And what I loved to do as a recruiter was to help my candidates make career decisions and to help my clients, the hiring firms, make business decisions around talent. And as a recruiter, you get to do a small part of that, but that's not the whole part of the job. And I thought about it for a long time. And I ultimately decided that I really wanted to refocus my career on the parts of the business that I loved the most. And what I didn't see at the time was that this was an urge for me to go back to my teaching roots and the desire to be a guide. And so I ultimately sold my equity back to my partners and decided to start coaching full-time. And coaching was not really, coaching was a very nascent industry at the time. It was not as robust as it is right now. And I don't think that it was as widely recognized as, and it's such an important career tool by as many people as it is today. A lot of people thought I was nuts, but I never looked back. I had some luck in that I decided to launch my business on client advisors in the fall of 2008. And that was a really fortuitous time to launch a investment management career coaching business. And I had my brand as a recruiter and I had my knowledge of the investment management business. And I focused my coaching business to start on helping people who were actually in career transition. And I did that for a few years. And what I found is that once clients successfully transitioned to their new role, they wanted to keep working together because that trust had developed and I knew their new role and I knew their business. And so from there grew an ongoing executive coaching practice. My practice today really has two buckets. It's people who are in career transition and then people who are in roles where they want to transition along a career path, but stay within that firm or on that career path that they're on. And so when looking back, I see that my career came full circle. I started out wanting to be a teacher and and wanting to be a guide and wasn't ready. And then I went and got what for me was really helpful experience to come back to this concept of teaching and coaching in a way that felt like I really had something to offer as guidance from a business perspective. It's great, Sloan, to hear about how your somewhat nonlinear career path and risk-taking along the way 
really led to an excellent, outstanding career. If you think about the various times in your life when you had to take risks and be brave, from wearing your brace to teaching, to the investment banking internship, to spinning out your own search firm, to doing your own career transition, to becoming a coach, it makes me think of something that you've shared with me in the past that what got you here won't get you there. Can you tell us and maybe set the stage? It's a great quote. What do we mean by this? I have to give kudos to Marshall Goldberg for that quote. It's not my quote, but it's something that I think is really important to keep in mind, which is that when you get a promotion or achieve a career goal, it's typically the core competencies that enabled you to achieve that success need to expand for you to be successful in the new role. You can't just keep on doing what you've been doing. I see this so much in my practice. And this success really hinges on the ability to recognize this and then do the work to expand. And I'll give you some examples. The newly promoted partner in a private equity firm who is promoted because he led successful transactions, but now needs to be able to repeatedly source deals and develop a niche and, and also cultivate his own LPs, the skill set, the core competencies need to expand. And, and how do you do that? Another example might be the newly minted chief investment officer who has a great investment track record and knows the portfolio really well, but now that person needs to independently manage first at, at the investment committee level and, and across the allocator platform or newly minted managing partner at a private equity firm who has to change the relationship with the previous managing partner, as well as with the partners who've been his peers, the person who has to learn how to exert authority where he didn't have it before in order to be successful in the new role. Another example might be the head of an outsourced CIO business at a large investment firm that moves into private wealth management business and needs to expand their business development and client relationship management skills in order to be successful with a new private wealth management client base. These are all examples of clients who achieve success or achieve success and then need to expand their skill sets in order to continue successfully along their career path. And this performance enhancement is something that I really enjoy coaching around. And I find it's so much fun to help somebody who has become successful really enhance that success and be even better. Excellent. So we have listeners across the spectrum. So within the CFA Boston Society, we've got 6,000 plus members across all stages of their careers, from private markets to public markets, private wealth to institutional and anything in between. And then we have others who are going to listen to this podcast who do not have their CFA. Can you help by painting us a picture of who needs a coach? At what stage, at what age, and what type of job? Sure. It's interesting. I think that everybody could benefit from working with a coach. I have a coach. <laughs> I think earlier in your career, you could have a coach to help you figure out your career path. You can have a coach to help you learn how to manage your career within your first early roles to help you think about how to 
manage up and manage down and delegate and give feedback and progress along a career path. You could have a coach to help you be strategic in your career. There's so many different kinds of coaching now. Then you could have a coach who would just help you in a career transition or help you do a job search and you do a resume and create a strategy and interview later in your career or as you progress along your career path. As I just mentioned, the type of coaching where you're working with this person as a thought partner to enhance performance is really valuable. Today, for a lot of my clients, I'm really a thought partner. And we use that period of time as a dedicated period of time every month to work on things that that person can't really talk to other people about in his or her organization. And I'm a sounding board and a thought person, and we work through issues as well as taking a step back and looking at the big picture and making sure that we're constantly making progress towards our career goals. I think in short, I think almost anyone can use a coach and can benefit from that relationship no matter where you are in your career. All right. So let's shift gears to your coaching practice. Can you tell us about the composition of the people that you coach? Sure. So it's interesting. Today, I'm still working with the same people that I've always been working with. My clients are senior people in investment management. I do sometimes work with people within the broader financial services sector, but predominantly it's investment management and it's both on the marketable side and on the alternative side. And my clients are people in uh, traditional investment management firms, people in alternative investment management firms like hedge funds, people on the allocator side across all different kinds of allocator platforms. I typically go at the director level and above. And then also I do a lot of work in, in the private equity world, principals and partners uh, and managing partners at private equity firms with a bit more of a focus on later stage in investing, not as much in, in the VC world. That's what the client base looks like. And the practice has two buckets to it. I work with people who are actually in or want to make a career transition. So they be maybe in a role and they want to leave or they've been fired or laid off and they have to make a transition. And how do they navigate that? What I do is I partner with them and I help them be as thoughtful and deliberate and successful and competitive as they can be in their search processes. And so that's the first bucket of the practice. The second bucket of the practice, as I mentioned before, is, is ongoing executive and leadership coaching. And that is around people who are newly minted into any kind of role within investment management where their skill sets need to expand. And I also, in that part of the practice, help people who are in difficult cultures to navigate those cultures, navigate conflict. And then as you can imagine, there's some overlap between the two. Like somebody on the executive's coaching side of the business might ultimately decides to make a career transition and then I can help them with that. Just the same way as somebody on once they make the transition then wants to keep working together to help them be successful in the new roles. There's a bit of a flywheel aspect to the practice. And I have clients that I've been working with for over 10 years, and they'll come in and out of the practice based on what's going on with their career. And they'll bring me in to help their teams. And I love what I do because I really, I get to, to build these deep relationships with people and help them throughout their careers. That's great. So maybe could we dig a little bit deeper 
and get a sense for some of the actual tools that you use, if you'd be willing to tell us about some of them, whether it's for each of those two practice group buckets that you described, or whether it's from another angle, what are some of the, the top tools that you like to begin to use when working with clients? Sure. I've developed some self-assessment exercises that I use in, in both parts of the practice. On the transition side of the practice, I have some self-assessments that I use to help clients hone in on what are their career priorities. And, and that expands into their priorities for their vision of their life, as well as for what they want to accomplish in their career, because nobody has a career just in a vacuum. And then we also look at what are the constraints to a search and both internal and external constraints and how are those informed by the market and also informed by fear. I have an exercise that looks at what would the ideal role be. And then I have another exercise where we look at what are your performance zones and which performance zones do you spend the most time in your current role and, and what is your zone of genius and where would you like to spend you know, how could you spend more time in your zone of genius? And we use that to come up with a search strategy. And then I partner with the clients to do everything that they need to execute on that strategy. So I have resume templates and I help them navigate applicant tracking systems. I have a strategy for using LinkedIn for search and building your LinkedIn brand. I have a networking strategy that I teach to clients. I have an interview preparation process that I walk clients through. And then I'm behind the scenes helping them as they're blocking and tackling on their search. And then, you know, once we figure out what the person is going to do next, I have an onboarding process that I walk clients through and really help them get started on the right foot. And so those are some tools for the transition side of the practice on the executive coaching and leadership side of the practice. The tools really come into the discovery process in that I have a, a number of self-assessments that I use there. The, the performance zone exercises are, are one of them as are priorities. Um, and then I will create customized discovery questions. Oftentimes we'll get 360 feedback to inform our discovery. I'm also a certified Hogan coach. And so we'll do Hogan leadership assessment if the client is into that. And we take all of that input and then we use that to create coaching goals. And then we take those coaching goals and we Together, it's really, it's a collaborative process. We take that person's knowledge of the market and what they want to accomplish and my knowledge of their business. And we come up with very specific tactics for accomplishing those goals and then metrics for measuring our progress towards those goals. I'm, I'm a really big believer in if you don't try to measure it, it's impossible to make progress, even though it's very hard to put an exact measurement on coaching progress. But we set up a very specific framework for the client to be able to have some concrete ways to measure the ROI of coaching and for us to really understand, are we making progress together? Yes. And that ROI number is so important. The return on that investment that, that clients are making when engaging with a coach. And I know from looking at your website that there are some very powerful ROI numbers from people who've, who've engaged you as their coach. Tell us a little more about the stay versus go decision tool that you described to me. So it's interesting. One of the things that I really believe and, and have found in my in my career and also in, in coaching is that 
people often do not decide to leave soon enough. They stay in a place too long. Annie Duke actually just recently wrote a whole book about this. It's, it's about the power of quitting. And one of the things that I really believe in is that inherent in every decision to quit is the decision to stay. And so if you're not going to quit, you need to be proactively deciding to stay, not staying out of inertia. And so if you're not selling, you're buying. And so I have this self-assessment exercise that I use to walk clients through a series of thought processes to assess not just the validity of taking another role, if, if that's what we're trying to decide, but if you're not going to take the other role, should you stay? Or if a client is, is unhappy in a role, why are they staying? Is that role really contributing to their career optionality in the future? Like if they stay in that role another five years, how does that improve their career optionality? And the answers to those questions inform a lot of the work that we do. Is the person going to decide it going to leave, in which case we would do a search? Or is the person going to stay? And if they are going to stay, then how does that role need to evolve? Where do they need to be focusing their time and energy in order to continue to improve their optionality and, and build their career and, and get where they ultimately want to go? The stay versus go exercise is, in my mind, it's a really important assessment to do every year. You should be thinking proactively about it. And it's not that you're not loyal to the place where you are. It's that everyone should be proactive about managing their career. That's so helpful, Sloan. What are some other pieces of advice that are tangible, action-oriented that our listeners can take away with them today? I would say that one of the most important things about career management that people don't necessarily think about, especially early on in their careers, is the importance of relationships. And I can't stress it enough. I think that relationships are one of the most valuable pieces of career currency that there are. And when people, especially early on in their careers, when they're thinking about building their careers, they're always thinking about getting the experience, building the knowledge, building the skills to be successful. And they forget about the relationship. And I can't tell you how many people come to me later in their career and they need to do a job search. And they're terrified of doing the job search because they say they don't have a network. That's the one thing that everybody can solve for early on in their career. It's really important to build relationships, to nurture them, to grow them, and to be deliberate about it and have a plan around it. And take those relationships with you from role to role. Because that becomes your personal brand in many ways. And that's the greatest career insurance there is. In another piece of career advice that I would pass on actually originally stemmed from some advice that I used to always get from my stepfather. He was a successful criminal defense attorney, and he used to always tell me to take time to scheme. And the way that I interpreted this was actually in, in two ways. The first is that Frequently, I see in, in my practice, everybody's so busy these days and, and they rush through their days going from meeting to meeting and people don't make time in their calendar for strategic thinking. And so I tell all my clients that you should take time every single week for some strategic thinking around your work and around your career so that you're not just being reactive. But you need to be thinking about where are you going 
Where is your business going? What's going well? What could be going better? What are your motives and agendas? And what are the motives and the agendas of the people around you? And that kind of thinking can't happen unless you make time for it. And so it starts with something so simple as just blocking some time in your calendar every week. And the second way to use that time would be to always be thinking about how to improve your career optionality. As I mentioned before, you want to be thinking about before you take a new role, considering the options that success in that role will create for you in the future. And when you're in a role, as I mentioned before, you want to always be thinking about how the responsibilities that you have and the skills that you're building in your role are, are going to be preparing you for future roles. And again, those two paths of thinking can't happen on any kind of a regular basis unless you actually make time for them. Those are some great pieces of advice, Sloan. Can you also tell us a little bit more about how people should think about finding opportunity in periods of stress? Sure. Many times in my coaching practice, people see coaching because of a pain point, right? Like they've had a big loss in their portfolio or there's been a deal that they missed or the firm isn't doing well or they've been uh, laid off or they've been fired. And it's really important to think about your mindset going into these periods of time because oftentimes people are so focused on the loss or the failure and reliving it and, and the stress over it and the guilt and the blame and the, I could have done this differently, I should have done this differently, that it's hard to pivot and, and to really see that inherent in every loss and every failure is a future success if you think about it correctly. So that horrible deal in your portfolio or that bad investment that you made, what did you learn from it? And how does that make you a better investor in the future? You got fired. What were the mistakes that you made? And how are they going to inform your behavior in the future? And how do you tell that story? And so I can't stress it enough that it's really important to proactively make that mind shift away from the negative of the failure or the loss to the learning around it and how can that inform your success in the future. Now, let's say that the listeners today are fully convinced that they need a coach to help get them to the next level of their career. How should they go about finding the right coach for them? This is a great question because it's actually not that easy. <laughs> Finding a career coach today is a highly disintermediated process. It's hard to find coaches and the coach match is, is often left to chance. I can't tell you how many people find me because they say, oh, a friend of a friend's brother worked with you and it's random. And there's nothing wrong with finding a coach through someone that you know. And that can be a really great way to do it, but that doesn't necessarily ensure coach match. And it's exactly this problem that made me so excited when I discovered this company called Coach Select. And Coach Select was founded by Cato Sullivan and Meg Schmidt, who are ex-Bridgewater. And I actually met them through the Institutional Investor article that you mentioned earlier in the podcast. And today I'm an advisor to Coach Select. Coach Select is a premium career and executive coaching platform that is focused on matching people to the right coaches. We work with individuals who are looking for a coach. We also work with talent leaders in need of coaches for their employees. And we have a proprietary behavioral science-based algorithm 
that we use to match people within our stable of over 50 coaches today. And, and we have coaches in all different sectors, across all different kinds of coaching. And what you do is you have a 30-minute concierge meeting, and we take what we learn from that concierge meeting about what kind of a coach you're looking for and some of the parameters, expense or amount of coaching you want. And we put all of that into our algorithm and then you get matched within our coaching system. And within a few days, you have two to three coaches to interview and select. And it's a great way to balance out the process that you might be running on the side, which is the friend of a friend. And then when you make that coach decision, you can go into that coaching relationship with confidence, knowing that you really did your homework and you picked the coach that was the best fit for you. Thank you, Sloan. This has been wonderful. Let's wrap up with a book recommendation. What is it, your favorite book and why? Uh, I don't know if this is my favorite book of all time, but this is a book that I highly recommend to everybody right now. It's a book called Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooks. And for those of you who haven't heard of Arthur Brooks, he teaches the happiness course at Harvard Business School. What I love about this book is it's applicable to everyone. And if you're early in your career, it's a great book to use for career planning and thinking about the stages of your life. And if you're later in your career, it's a great book for thinking about some of the challenges you might be experiencing. And basically what his premise is that in the first half of life, Evers, who are definitely my entire client base, they strive tirelessly and, and they sacrifice to become successful. And in the second half of life, drivers work just as hard, but oftentimes are not as successful. And, and that's because the rules have changed and they're achieving less success and they have less happiness and they become burned out. And without giving too much away, about the book, it, it's just his premise is that is because people fail to appreciate that as you progress in life, there is a transition from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence that happens. And crystallized intelligence is really about passing on what you've learned and your wisdom and the emotional intelligence that you've built throughout your career. And so he has this sort of framework for the four stages of life. And she wraps it up with this quote, which I just think is so awesome, which is that the key to happiness is about using things, loving people, and worshiping the divine in whatever form the divine has for you. And I just find that is that's that really resonates with me. And there's no one on the planet who can't use that advice in some way. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sloan. This has been fantastic. I think well, thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Pull Up a Chair. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with fascinating industry leaders. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information on CFA Society Boston, visit us online at cfaboston.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.